Okay, welcome back. It's good to have you back. Hopefully, everybody came back. Um, we're in a uh, we're in a series on the Book of John. But before we get to that, I just want to mention a couple of announcements real quick. Um, our our Navajo Christmas backpacks. Our goal is to supply a hundred backpacks for Navajo kids. Bill and Grace Manning are there on the reservation. Uh, they were here and they they moved there. Uh, and uh, part of their ministry is giving backpacks with school supplies and gifts to the children right there um, in the immediate area that they uh, minister to. And so we have a goal of 100 backpacks. It's going to cost approximately $2,000 to supply 100 backpacks to those kids. And uh, if you would like to give to that, if you're at home or here, you just designate it. You just mention in backpacks on the memo line if it's a check, or you can do that if you, if you, if you pay online. Uh, we have a, a, a little um, plate. That was the word I was looking for. We have an offering plate in the back. You can drop it in there, you know, any way you want. Uh, you can contact me. It doesn't matter. We, we just uh, would love to be able to do that. It's changed. Usually we send a Christmas team there to minister, and everything has changed, especially on their end. They've had a, uh, an outbreak uh, their second wave, and it has been vicious, and they had a terrible first wave. And so even talking to Bill and Grace, they know personally, you know, 10 to 14 people who have died in that small area. And so it is just running rampant, and so we cannot send a team. And, uh, and they told us not to send a team, and, uh, but we can supply backpacks. And so we're going to do that. We're already ordering them. Assuming that you guys are going to come through, otherwise it's all on Jose. So, tough luck for him. Next thing is uh, on December the 5th, on Saturday, December the 5th, from 5.30 to 7, we're having Christmas under the stars outside, and uh, just a lot of things. We still need a couple of volunteers. We need some people to help just hand out cookies. How tough is that? That's not a bad job description. And then we need another person just to help direct traffic. Another thing that's not that, that tough, so if you could help with that. You can contact the church or you can contact Robin. She's in, right now in there working with the kids. Right after Christmas Under the Stars, that's from 5.30 to 7, inside we'll have Psalms for the Assembly. Josh Toth, who is up here, and his sister Joy will be singing and reading and singing some of the Psalms, the book of Psalms, which were meant to be sung. That's why they were written the way they are written. And so we'll be doing that from 7 to 8, just, to, just an incredible time of uh, worship, and, and praise. We, we would love to have you be a part of that. Uh, whatever you can do on that day from 530 to 7 is Christmas under the stars and 7 to 8 is Psalms for the assembly. Just a reminder for our ministry to uh, children whose parents are incarcerated. The, the angel tree gifts are due today. If uh, you're having trouble getting in, give us a call. We'll, we'll, we'll come pick them up from you if we have to. And, uh, but we, we want to get those in as quick as possible because now we can begin to distribute them into the community. All right, we're in John chapter 1. We've been in John chapter 1 for a few weeks, and we first talked about verses 1 through 14 as the prologue. That's where John introduces the, this whole book. And uh, if you remember, we talked about it. It's an it's a ancient, uh, uh, not, not just Hebrew, but a lot of people did this in those days. They would use what's, what's called a chiasm or a chiasm, and they would, they would have a a block of verses, and then if you outline those verses according to content, they come to the, a point like an arrow, so that the, the middle verses would be the verses that are the most important. 
And so if you, if you look at the beginning of John chapter 1 and then you look at John chapter 1, verse 14, very similar theme in those verses. And then they keep coming together till you hit verses 12 and 13. And verses 12 and 13, uh, John 1 through 18, not 1 through 14, I'm sorry. 12 and 13 said, Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, or a man's will, or a human being's will, but born of God. Now, what happened? See, John starts telling us, he starts telling us about Jesus. He starts telling, he introduces us to the Word, the Logos. And then he tells us that Word is God. And then he tells us things about the Word, that He's, he's life and He's light. And the light shines in darkness. And he keeps going and he says, there's a man who was sent to introduce him. He was a witness. He wasn't the light. He was just a witness to the light. And then this, she talks about, and so this all breaks down to, okay, why? What's so important? What's so important? What's so important about calling the word Logos? What's so important that the word is God? What's the point? You see? And John says, here's the point. To those who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives them the right to become children of God. Do you see? The point is you and me. That's the point. That's an incredible thought that all of this planning, all of this work, all of this submission, all of this love, all of this grace, all of this mercy is coming to a point, to a very particular spot, and that spot is you. That's why this is important. John is saying, this is the point. He's coming to give us life because we're dead. He's bringing life. And so that's the whole point of describing who Jesus was, that the Word became flesh, that the Word is the glory of God in visible form, that all of these things. And now we finished up that introduction. We're looking at John the Baptist. So we can get mixed up here if we're not careful. You know, we have a, this book is written by John the Evangelist. This is about John the Baptist. And we're introduced to John the Baptist in verse 19. And John the Baptist is a witness. It's like we're being in part, a part of a court case. There have been a few times in my life where I have been required to testify in a court. And um, I'm not going to go into the, why those things happened. You wouldn't be interested in my past. <clears throat> Anyways, at one point, the lawyer, a lawyer that was involved, he came to me uh, before I testified. And he said, just tell the court, just tell the court what you saw and what you heard. You can state how what you saw and heard affected your behavior in that moment. But he said, don't draw conclusions. Don't try to help people understand it. Just be an impartial witness and allow the court to draw the necessary conclusions. And this is what we're getting from John the Baptist. He's going to give us a witness He's going to give us a testimony. He's going to be testifying like a courtroom witness. And he's going to state things, and then he's going to allow us to draw some conclusions to understand what it is. And so in this passage, John 1, 29 to 34, we're going to talk about the Lamb of God. It's so awesome. We just sang about the Lamb of God. Now we're going to talk about the Lamb of God. So I'm going to read verses 29 to 34. It's not going to be on the screen. You can just follow along. Listen, if you have your Bible or on your, on your phone, you can, you can read it with me. But verse 29, the next day, John 
saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify, this is God's chosen one. So we had an introduction. Verses 1 through 18, the prologue, the introduction. Now we're in the first chapter and we're beginning to read. And John the evangelist is laying the groundwork. He's telling us about this man. And he says, I want to give you this man's testimony. I want you, I want you to hear his sworn testimony, of what he saw and what he heard. And that's what we're doing. And so we see at the very first part of this, I want you to see there is a world-changing declaration. All right? He makes a declaration. That's in verse 29. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look. Look, some versions will say, behold, because they're trying, they're trying to communicate the force of the exclamation. It's like everybody focus there. Now, if you remember, last week we were talking about John the Baptist when he was interviewed by the people sent from the Sanhedrin, from the Pharisees. And, and they kept saying, are you, no, are you this, no, are you this, no. And he kept saying, no, not me, not me. There's one who is coming. Focus on him. Focus on him. This is John's secret. He focuses on Jesus, not on himself. It's not something we haven't heard before. It's not something we don't know. But it's such a powerful thing when we think about it. If I learn to focus on Jesus, it changes everything. And so here's John's testimony. He says, look, look, not at me. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how does he arrive at this conclusion that Jesus is the Lamb of God? What does that mean? What does it mean to those who originally heard these words? And what does it mean to us in our lives? We talked a couple of weeks ago about how we're going to grapple with doctrine. And people think oftentimes of doctrine as this stuff that way up there that all these intellectuals talk about. No, doctrine is where the nitty-gritty is. It's where we live, and it affects the way we live. So what do those words mean to us? So the first part is, after the previous conversation, this is the next day. Uh, this refers to the day following the interview of John by the priests and the Levites. We looked at that last week. They kept saying, who are you? And he kept saying, I'm not the Christ. I'm not, a, I, I'm not, I'm not. I'm just a voice saying, prepare the way for the Christ to be revealed. Basically, he's saying, stop looking at me and start looking for someone who's coming, who is infinitely greater than I am. Look at him. And now John's saying, there he is. He's right there. He's standing among you. He's the Lamb of God. What kind of Lamb of God? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin. And he, this is, it's an interesting thing. He, he makes it a singular, but it's a singular that emphasizes the totality of it. Not all the each individual. It includes every each individual sin, but it's the totality, and it's the idea of emphasizing how huge it is. The sin of the whole world. 
That's the kind of lamb. Now, this is an interesting thing to me. Because, you know, if you're going to inspire devotion and courage among your followers, lamb is not a great idea. Right? Nobody goes, ooh, I tangled with a lamb one time. That was a close call. Nobody says that, right? You would choose something that's a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more uh, fearsome. My high school mascot, I, was, I grew up there in Northern Virginia as a Wakefield Warriors. We were the Warriors, and we had a fight song that would inspire us to, to, to play more. I don't know if this fight song really inspired us to play more aggressively, but we like to think that. Then I went to college, and part of my grad school was at the University of Maryland. Now, the University of Maryland is the Terrapins. So they're turtles, and it was a little bit of a letdown to go from warriors to turtles. But if, if you know, you think about a mascot, a team, a lamb, if you, if you were a football team and you had a mascot that was like a lamb, it would be kind of like this, I think. You know, just a little helmet on, you look so cute, right? Or in light of what happened last Thursday, maybe it would look like this. Oh, wait, how did that? <laughs> That's not, that is not supposed to be. Jose did that. I love Washington, but our assistant pastor, Jose, is from Philadelphia, and he does stuff like that. So if you are a Dallas fan, blame him, please. But why, why the Lamb of God? Why not the bull of God? They sacrifice bulls. Okay, why not the ram of God, right? Nobody drives a Dodge lamb, right? Why not the ram of God? But what, what does it do? What does it do to the hearers of that day? They're intimately acquainted with lambs in the sacrificial system. They're intimately acquainted with that. Leviticus taught that a lamb without blemish was to be sacrificed. Scripture teaches that the blood of that lamb, throughout Scripture we see the blood of the lambs who are sacrificed, they don't take a waste, they just cover it temporarily. It's not dealt with permanently. It has this idea, we cover it until the day that it is dealt with permanently. The day that is coming, the one who is coming. That's over and over. We see it with Abraham. We see it with the angel of death with the Egypt, in Egypt all the time, this idea. So John says this is the Lamb of God. But what right did John have to declare that Jesus was the Lamb of God? The Lamb of God. There, I switched it already. And this is what's interesting to me because I think this gets lost a lot of time. John's father was Zacharias the priest. and His father ministered in the temple. So John is of the priest lineage. He is a priest. The only people who are allowed to identify the lambs that are worthy to be sacrificed are priests. That's what they're trained, that's a part of what they're trained to do, is to identify the lambs that are without spot and without blemish. That's their job. And John in an exercise of his priestly authority, looks and says, that's the Lamb. But that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John ide identifies him as a part of his authority as a priest, the ultimate Lamb that doesn't cover. You notice he doesn't say that. He doesn't cover the sins of the world like all the other lambs. He says this Lamb takes them away deals with them. 
The word for take away is this word meaning to lift a heavy burden. It's the idea that we're, we're burdened. We're under this burden of our sins. And it's this idea of lifting a burden and taking it away. When I was a kid, sometimes our family went camping, and I was the youngest of uh, three boys, and I was the youngest and uh, um, a l- little bit, sp- I was spoiled and bratty. And so one time, as we're unpacking to walk down a ways to our campsite, we're up in Canada somewhere, I said, I want to carry one of the two tents. And they're like, you can't carry, I can't, I can't carry a tent, I can't. So they put this tent, you know, they're not as small as the ones we have nowadays. They put this tent in my arms, I'm like, I can do it, I can do it. And I get like 20 feet, and I'm like, I can't do it, I can't do it, somebody take the tent. And so the Heavenly Father, my dad, ordered the son, my brother Dan, take his burden and take it down. Take it away. So what did he do? He lifted off me. I think he called me a punk, but he lifted it off me, and then he carried it away. This is that word. He says, behold the Lamb of God. He is going to lift this off of you, and through his power, he is going to take it away. Your power has nothing to do with it. My power has nothing to do with it. I can think I'm something, but when it came to carrying away that burden, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And so he took it away. Jesus took our sin away. Where? Well, we are told he's taken it away to a place where it can never be remembered again. You know, that's something I think probably we've all heard. But if you start to think about that, never to be remembered again, never to be brought up again, this will not get thrown in your face ever again. And so Jesus took it away. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have come to know him as your Savior, you've confessed your sins. And you know how sometimes you confess, and then you remember something you've done. Oh, it hurts. You remember something you did that you're so ashamed of, and it comes back and you feel, oh, I'm such a jerk. I want to tell you something. That's not God. The Holy Spirit reminds us, uh, uh, convicts us of sins that have to be confessed. But Satan brings up sins that have been confessed. Satan, and just sometimes our own sin nature. And for what reason? To crush us. So if there's something in your past, and man, it comes up and it hurts. Yeah, I have that. Just remember who it is who's reminding you of it. It's not God. Because to God, he's saying, I have no memory of that. I have no memory of what you're talking about, what you're thinking It's gone. That's a powerful truth. That's doctrine that hits us right where we live because we live in that. We remember things we've done. We remember hurts that we've caused, people we've disappointed, or or people we've just let down totally, or things that we've said that have been mean and petty. And those kind of things make you, ah. And just remember, those things that come up, what are they trying to do? They're trying to tell you, you're a nobody. You are worthless. They say, who do you think you are? You're a failure. Look what you did. Look at it. Those things come up. Who does that? Not God. Because they're gone, according to God. And so Jesus came to take care of all those sins. Notice here that he says the sins of the world, not take away the sins of Israel. 
And that's what a popular idea was in Jewish thought back then, obviously. We talked about this before. The Messiah is exclusively for us. And John is rocking that. Right? He's saying... Oh, wait, he said this. I'll, I'll read it to you. He said, oh, the, from chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, yet to all who did receive him, all, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And see, the Jews thought, we're all children of We're the children of God. And John now is totally blowing that away because he says anyone who believes in him, he come, gives the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, not of a human decision, not of two people deciding to do something. And so what is he saying? The whole Jewish identity is not the key here. The key here is who believes. So he's the lamb. He's the lamb of God. And there's only one thing that separates God and man from, from, from each other. That is sin. And there's only one lamb who can take away that sin. And his name is Jesus. That's why he's God's lamb. He's the lamb that God himself has provided. He's the unique lamb, chosen. He's the one and only lamb, specifically selected to fulfill God's great plan to redeem humanity by taking away sin. Sin is the universal problem of all people in the world, and Jesus is the universal Savior of all people who receive Him. All those who believe on His name. In verse 31, John says, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So here's an interesting thing. John the Baptist is saying, I have a purpose. I have a purpose for my life. I have a purpose for what I'm doing. Because when those people came to question him, they said, who are you? What's the point? You're in the middle of the wilderness. You're getting all these people to come out. You're doing something that's very strange to us. You're baptizing people in water. Jews, you're baptizing Jews. We don't need to be baptized. You're, this is so strange. What are you doing? And now John is telling him, here's what I'm doing. This is what God told me to do. I came baptizing with water so that Jesus would be revealed. And John may not have totally understood that to begin with, but that's what happened when, when God informed him and worked in him to show him that's what he was doing. God called him to do something, to call people to repentance, to baptize people, and reveal Jesus. That was his deeper purpose, to reveal the Messiah. You know, you may not be sure what your purpose is on this earth. But from John, we learned, just try to show Jesus. Just try to point to Jesus, whatever you do. Whatever you do. It's interesting, we've started, you know, we have a basket in the back. People can write down a prayer request and leave it in the basket, and then it goes out to, to people who are praying, who who have promised to be praying faithfully and regularly for requests that have come in. So there are people who are praying every day for these requests. It's interesting talking to one of them, you know, with COVID and health issues and all this stuff. This person just said, I can't do much, but I can pray. And what's going on there? What's going on there? That person's pointing to Jesus. This is, I can do this for Jesus. I can do this for Jesus. So John has been telling us this declaration. It's a world-changing declaration. But now he's going to give, in a sense, his eyewitness statement. He's going to give the testimony like before a court. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, John is saying, he went up out of the, oh, no, this is from Matthew. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So John witnessed that, and he's going to tell, tell us about it. And this is, this is what he says in, uh, in verse 32. I have it. I'm just a little, there we go. Verse 32, John gave his testimony. No, this ends at 31. I'm so sorry. I didn't put it, I didn't send it in. Here it is. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove, just what we heard in Matthew, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So here's his sworn test, his sworn statement, his testimony. He says, I saw, he told me. You will see, I have seen, I testify. He uses all those words in that statement. And so his, his purpose is to call people to repentance, to, to baptize people. But the overarching purpose is to reveal the Messiah to the nation of Israel, specifically through the act of baptism. And so God sent John out to the wilderness. In verse, one, in verse 6 in chapter 1, it says God sent him there, out to the wilderness to call people. And he told him, there's a specific thing that I want you to do. I want you to call for repentance. I want you to baptize people, but there's a specific thing. This is so important. Look for the one that the Spirit descends on and remains on. Look for him. That's the chosen one. And when you see him, announce it. And so that's what happened. He did that. He looked. He said, how will I know him? You know, it's like if you ever ever sent to meet someone for the first time, you say, how will I know them? How will I know them? Sometimes people say, oh, they wear a red hat on their head. You'll see a red hat on their head. God says to John, the Spirit will be on his head. The Spirit will remain upon him. That's how you will know him. And so in that Matthew passage, as soon as Jesus came out of the water, the Spirit came down. And John was like, this is it. This is it. I knew I was in the presence of greatness. Because even before he said, you should baptize me, not me, you. And Jesus said, no, this has to happen this way to fulfill. And so the Spirit came upon him. In, those, in the Old Testament, the, the, old, the Spirit would come and go, accomplish tasks, and then leave. And now there's this sense of the Spirit now remains. The Bible promises when the Spirit of God comes to indwell, He remains. In contemporary Jewish belief, there was this idea that the Messiah would be the bearer of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would be manifested in His works. The Spirit would be shown in everything that He does. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Him. In Isaiah 42, it says, I put my Spirit on Him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and and the opening of prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the scripture that Jesus read. It's kind of a cool thing. Um, Synagogues in those days would have a reading schedule. Every every Saturday, a, a portion of scripture would be read, and it was a a formal schedule. Some were on a three-year schedule. Some were on a five-year schedule. But every person of age, every man of age in that community would be assigned a day. It would be like they put out a calendar. It's very similar that they put out a calendar and they would say, hey, your day 
is this, you know, January the 3rd, whatever it is, and you read this passage. And Scripture tells us Jesus went to his hometown because it was his turn to read. And so he unfolds the scroll. And this is, you know, how God plans even the most minute things down to the detail. So it's Jesus' turn out of three years to read, and he unfolds the scroll, and he reads. This is the passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Out of all the passages in the Old Testament, Jesus reads one that points directly to the Messiah on the day that it's his turn to read. And so that's why, if you read that passage, that's why Jesus closes the scroll and says, this has been fulfilled. This has been fulfilled. And everybody's like, who does he think he is? Who, can you imagine? He's in his hometown. Can you imagine? I'd be like, wait, dude, I went to school with you. you know, we used to go over in the area and throw rocks at things. What are you talking about? They couldn't believe it. But God arranged that reading plan so that would be the day Jesus wrote. That was a, that was a freebie, totally not part of the sermon. But the world-changing declaration, the eyewitness statement. Now, what are the implications for us? When we start to talk, now, there are a lot of implications, but I want to I hone in on two, basically just two. And here's why. Because we've talked about doctrine and what is doctrine. And we're going to look at doctrine with boots on, doctrine that walks where we walk, that lives where we live, doctrine that affects us in our life. Here's the first thing I want you to see. First thing this tells us is that Jesus is a substitute. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. He is a substitute. That's just straight-up doctrine. And it's very important doctrine. In all the Old Testament stories involving lambs, all of those stories, they covered the sin temporarily. Remember that? They were a substitute that covered temporarily. When Abraham was walking up the mountain with Isaac, and Isaac said, which is an incredibly poignant scene as a parent, it's so hard to imagine that scene of Isaac saying, Dad, something's wrong. We have the wood. You know, we have this. We have the, where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? And, and Abraham says, Son, the Lord will provide a lamb. The Lord of private lamb. In Egypt, God told them the angel of death was coming. He said, take a lamb, put its blood on your, the outside of your door. You will not die. In Isaiah, Isaiah 53, he talks about the lamb that's coming, the lamb that is led to slaughter, that goes on its own way. It doesn't resist. It doesn't bite. It doesn't kick. It doesn't bite. And, and goes to the, for, for the sins of his people. Can you imagine this? I mean, I think about this sometimes. John the Baptist, there he is. He's doing this. He's, he's, he knows something big is coming. He doesn't quite understand all of this stuff, but he knows something big, big is coming. And all of a sudden, he sees Jesus. And I mean, it's just like a divine, almost like a divine revelation. He goes, that's the lamb. That's the lamb. And what is he saying? That's the lamb that we were talking about with Abraham. 
Abraham told, was basically saying to his son, the lamb will die so you don't have to die. And he goes, that's the lamb that will die so I don't have to die, that you don't have to die. That's the lamb whose blood will cover and keep the ultimate death from happening to his followers. That's the lamb who's coming, who will be led to the slaughter without, without fighting, without kicking, without, without running. That's the ultimate lamb. That's the lamb that God sent. And it, and it just comes together. I, I can imagine he was almost dumbstruck because suddenly the plan of, of God, this infinite plan of God all comes together right in front of his eyes. And he's like, oh, man. This happens at other times in Scripture. If you remember when uh, Jesus, and, uh, Joseph and Mary take Jesus uh, to the temple when he's a baby, which they were supposed to do, and, and the, the priest who was there, his job, he, he had been praying, and God told him, I'm going to show you the Messiah. You get to be the person who blesses the Messiah as an infant. And, he, and he, he, they come up, and God says, this is the Messiah. And if, you, if you've read it, he says, I can die now because this is the most ultimate thing. The plan, the infinite plan of God for the universe has just been revealed to me personally. And I get to bless this baby, and I can die now. Now, I happen to think I have five who, kids who were incredibly cute babies. But no one ever looked at one of my kids and said, Whoa, I can die now. That's the cutest kid in the universe. I can die now. No one's ever said that. And he said that. He said that because he saw, he was struck by the fact, the enormity of God's plan, and it was right in front of his eyes. This is what's going on with John. This is why it's so easy for him to say, I am unworthy. Focus, for crying out loud, people focus on him. Because focusing on me will not do you much good. Focusing on him will save your soul. And so God sent the ultimate lamb, the final lamb, who stands in my place. And so when John the Baptist said, this is the lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world, that must have rocked them. That was totally out of their imagining. That was not what they were ready for. That's not what they were looking for. So the first thing is, incredible, important, doctrinal point, he's a substitute. The second is, this goes right along with it, this is voluntary. You have to understand this. You know, Jesus chose to do this, to be a part of God's plan. He chose this. Now, you can choose to do something, and then sometimes maybe partway along the way, the implications of what you're doing may hit you in a new and fresh way that kind of, whoa, what was I thinking, right? And I think something kind of like that may have happened at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was on his, his mission, his, his purpose. He knew what it was. Nothing, it wasn't catching him by surprise. But all of a sudden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's like he stared into the mouth of hell and realized what was going to happen. And it became real. Because the, the Bible uses two words for what came upon him. And, and, and one of them is a word that's used most of the time for a shriek. A shriek of pain or a shriek of sorrow. 
And then one of them is a word that's used for a deep gasp of horror. So that Jesus, it's, it's basically says he shrieked in pain and gasped in horror. And that's when he said, Father, anything is possible with you. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? And then he just says, not my will. Your will be done. And, it, and he stepped there into the Garden of Gethsemane. We've talked about this before. That word Gethsemane means that huge crushing stone that they used in, in agriculture. It's the Garden of the Crushing Stone. And Jesus suddenly, suddenly began to sense and feel the crush of the sin of the whole world coming down on him. And he shrieked and he gasped because it, it was in, in, incredible. And you know, he could have not been the lamb. He could have left. He could have said, why should I leave my infinite glory and infinite joy to take into my heart this burning agony for these people who can't even stay awake with me in one of the toughest, worst times of my life, my time of greatest need. They're falling asleep. They show no gratitude. They didn't even ask me to come. And he can broaden it. He could broaden it to us. I didn't ask Jesus to come and die for me. I didn't care about Jesus. At one point in my life, I shook my fist at him and said, no, never will I follow you. Taught me that my arms are too short to box with God. That's for sure. He didn't, and I'm thankful he didn't listen to me. And Jesus didn't say, why am I doing this for these losers? He said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. That's what he said. And this is that application of doctrine. Do you ever feel like a failure as a Christian? Are you ever crushed by your faithlessness sometimes? Do you ever get depressed by the fact that you failed God in so many ways, even after coming to know him, even after the way he's blessed you, and yet sometimes you ignore, sometimes you say things you know, you say them on purpose, and you know they're, they're, they're hurtful to people? And you look at yourself and you think, I'm such a loser. I'm terrible at this. I want you to know this was all dealt with at the garden. Jesus saw his closest friends fail him, and he went to the cross anyways. He knew they were failure. He had, he, he, his vision was totally clear on that. I don't look at sometimes, you know, I, I, don't, I don't follow through on things or I don't do things I know God wants me to do. And I'm like, oh, it's not like God goes, oh my goodness, I didn't know you were going to do that. No, he knew it. He saw it, lived out in front of him with his closest friends. He saw it with his closest friends. And so all that crap that sometimes we get so upset about, it's been taken care of. He knew that ahead of time. It doesn't, he, he, it didn't stop him. He still loves. He still forgives. He still shows grace. He still shows, shows mercy. This is why John recognized so clearly that he was unworthy. He says, I'm unworthy multiple times. But Jesus is still the Lamb of, Lamb of God for the whole world and for John, the unworthy one. His love for John is overwhelming. His grace is greater than all sin. I can imagine how John felt. It gave him great confidence and humility at the same time. 
And if anything, John became an even more powerful voice after this time of meeting Jesus and recognizing he was the Lamb of God. He became an even more powerful voice for righteousness and justice. He came back out of the wilderness and he spoke truth to power. He went to Herod, you fox, you slimeball, you can't marry your brother's wife. This is sin. And he chose the one person most closest to him who had the power of life and death over him, Herod. And he said, you're wrong to his face. You're wrong. And I don't care what you do. People are like, dude, Herod's going to kill you. I know. And he went to prison. And he ended up, he ended up losing his life. And he realized his focus was not on himself. His focus was on the Lord. His focus was on God. His focus was on Christ, the Lamb of God. That energized him to be able to be so strong and so, so forceful. And he realized that if he spoke the Word and he taught the, the Word, he could have this confidence, not in himself, but in the Word of God. And let me be honest here. I'm a pastor, and I'm just a human being. I have the same struggles and pains as anyone else. I'm not special. And there are times in my life, there are times when I'm studying during the week or whatever, and I'm going, Bob, you're such a hypocrite. You teach the Word of God, and you still struggle. You're such a failure, those things we just talked about. But I can stand here and be confident, not because I have this stuff down pat, not because it's my teaching, it's not my word. It's the word of God. And I have confidence in the word of God. It is my great privilege and my great honor to teach the word of God. It's not my great ability. It's not my great wisdom. It's not my great personality. It's God's great word. I am unworthy, but I have a worthy Savior. And so I want to point to him. And I know I failed. John wasn't perfect. John doubted at one point, or at least struggled with it some. And if you read that passage, Jesus quotes that Isaiah passage where I've come to free the, the, all those things to John. John says, are you, should I look for another? Are you really the Messiah? He's struggling. He's in prison. He knows his life is on the line. And Jesus says to John, here's what's going on. The lame are walking, the blind are seeing. And he starts quoting that passage that points to the Messiah. But he does one thing different. He doesn't read the line about prisoners being set free. Because he says to John, you're not coming out of there. I am the Messiah. I'm fulfilling what the Messiah is supposed to fulfill. But John, I want to tell you this. You're not walking out of that place. It's a hard thing because sometimes Jesus has to teach us hard things in our lives. But I am not worthy. You are not worthy, but we have a worthy Savior. And John learned after meeting Jesus that time, he focused on him, not on himself. He says, I'm not even worthy. Remember, we talked about this last week. The, the, the lowest job they could think of that only a slave could do was to take off someone's shoes. And John said, I'm not even worthy to do that for this. 
for this one, for Jesus, because he's the Lamb of God. He learned to focus on Jesus, not himself. And they kept saying, who are you? He kept saying, no, 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 look at him. No, 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 look at him. No, 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 look at him. And sometimes we get a taste of this in our life. We can, we can kind of think sometimes, um, you know, I, I think about this. I, I'm trying to learn how not to think that I am so great and how not to think that I am so terrible. I'm trying to learn how not just to think about me. Not get caught up in whether I think I'm doing something great or not get caught up in whether I'm getting, doing something terrible. Just try not to get caught up in thinking about me and making it all about me. And sometimes this can bring us great joy. We get a taste of this at times where the focus on Jesus is clean and it's pure and it's amazing. And it's the place where there's freedom and there's no self-pity. It's exhilarating at times. Just doesn't happen real often, maybe more for you than me, but not always real often in my life. But there are times where God breaks through and it's just like this pure, clean moment with Him. And it's incredible. It's exhilarating. And when we begin to do that, when we begin to, and, and those are just tastes of what's to come. But when we begin to learn to focus on Him and not ourselves, then we can walk into a room, and I can walk into a room and not be consumed with whether I really want to be there or not. I can walk into a room and not be consumed with whether I want to spend time with these people or not. I can walk into anything and just not be consumed with what am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get out of this conversation? What am I going to get out of this hour? What am I going to get out of this church service? It's not about me. It's not about me. And it's not about you. We can learn to forget ourselves and look at Jesus. And that brings change. And it brings the change we sung about inside out. Because that's the only change that lasts. You can read self-help books and you can, you can make all kinds of changes, but those are just outward changes. Because inside, in your heart, you're still the same person. Jesus changes us from the inside out. That's the change that lasts. And we can learn to forget ourselves and look at Jesus. We can stop being driven by what others say, and we can become people who are being driven by what He says. And the difference between that is incredible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John, this man. He just wanted to serve you. And you gave him a great, a great job, a great purpose, great meaning in his life. And you say that you have for us, you have purpose, you have meaning for us. You have a reason for us to be here, to be alive. You have a reason for us to be in this situation right this moment, to be in the United States of America, to be in the midst of a COVID pandemic, to be in the midst of all the trials and all the tribulations, all the things that are going on around us, all the difficulties. You have a reason for us to be here and to be alive at this time. Father, help us just to try to focus on you and point to you in whatever we do. And we know that when we do that, you are pleased. We know when we do that, there is joy and freedom. And so, Lord, help us to pursue you and walk closely behind our Rabbi Jesus. We thank you, Father, for your word, that it teaches us this. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to remind you, um, just on uh, Saturday the 5th, 5.30 to 7, Christmas under the stars, 7 to 8, singing psalms together, honoring our King. 
it's just a great opportunity for us to uh, to worship and to be a part of something that God is doing. And uh, in the meantime, as you leave this place, and as for people at home, in whatever you do, whatever you can do, I encourage you, begin to think consciously about focusing on Jesus, about following Him, and just about looking for even the little things that you can do to impact a person's life, little words, little actions, little gifts, whatever it may be, to impact someone's life with the possibility of changing them for eternity. What an incredible privilege it is to be a daughter and a son of the living God. Thanks for coming. God bless you, and you are dismissed.